Genesis very clearly gives us an anthropological vision of human beings as creatures called to cultivate the good creation. And uh, we've spent a couple of centuries experimenting with other methods and it always means that the strong benefit and the weak suffer. So uh, maybe it's time for us to, to put an end to that experiment and go back to more fundamentally traditional concepts of, of, of creation care. Welcome to the Renew Our World podcast. Renew Our World is a global movement of Christians who believe that since we are truly image bearers of God, we should act like it, living out love for one another in actions and in truth. Since we are image bearers of God, we won't stand by while our neighbours are trapped in poverty and we won't stay idle as creation is left untended and inequality is left to fester. In this podcast, we're going to go on a journey together of discovering a theology of creation care. We'll be discussing the latest in climate news, chatting with industry leaders, theologians and practitioners and hearing from some of our incredible partners who are working on the ground. Join us this season as we learn about creation care and what we can do in our own lives to play part in a much bigger restorative story. So hi guys, welcome back to the Renew World podcast. We're really looking forward to having you for our what's going to be our last episode of the, the first series of the Renew World podcast. We really hope that you've enjoyed enjoyed this first series. We've had some really nice, uh, some varied content. I think hopefully, hopefully you've been enjoying it. And uh, you know, obviously, we, the last episode was on the the U.S. climate uh, or the U.S. election. And uh, obviously, you guys listened and made a difference. So well, well done you for that. Um, but yeah, jokes. Jo- leave, we'll leave we'll leave the joking aside for another day, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to have uh, Kevin Hergadden on with us today from. Uh, the Jesuit Centre of Faith and Justice based in, in Dublin in Ireland. Kevin, how are you doing? Uh, very good, David. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. We're, uh, we're excited to have you on today and to uh, explore some, some, more, some more themes and topics that uh, yeah, Renew World is interested in. And uh, particularly, I'm inter- really interested in hearing about the new papal encyclical. Uh, I think it'll be, it'll be good, good, good discussion on that. But um, yeah, how's, how's, how's life for you at the moment over in Ireland? It's, is, it, is it much different to... Uh, to what what people are experiencing around the world in terms of lockdowns, it's it's pretty it's pretty stringent back home, isn't it? Yeah, we have a, a total lockdown across the the state at the moment. Um, hopefully, it will continue to be successful. Uh, people are um, trying to stay at home to avoid contacts, to maintain all of the strict hygiene protocols, to work remotely when they can, and thankfully the curve is flattening. So. Uh, yeah. The anticipation is that in early December we'll be able to slowly relax and have somewhat of a normal Christmas, and then the the dreaded anticipation is that in the new year the curve might uh, start escalating again. So, um, we I think we have to hold our breath for one more time. And yeah. uh, the the great news this week, of course, that everybody is joyous about is that the vaccines do appear to be yeah. coming down the line. Um, so uh, things are okay in Ireland. The economy has held up better than we thought. A social cohesion has maintained. There hasn't been yeah, much yeah. of the kind of uh, clownish uh, anti-mask <laughs> nonsense that has afflicted other nations. So yeah. uh, it, it could be worse, let's put it that way, although yeah. it has been pretty yeah. crappy. So Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair to say. Yeah, I'm just wondering if poor Santa is going to have to wear a mask and anti-back his hands every time he... You know, drops off a present in the house. He might, he might have to. I don't know. I, I think the ideal situation would be for him to leave the presents at the door, 
Um, yeah, with a zip, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then just have, have the reindeer or someone ring the doorbell. Uh, we can come <laughs> up with, with solutions. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He's, a, he's a resourceful old fella. I'm exactly. sure he'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, well let's, let's move on to uh, some other, other topics of, of, uh, of conversation. But yeah, Kevin, I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and uh, particularly you're, you're a social theologian. So what, what is a social theologian? Um, uh, sadly, a social theologian is not a theologian with an expense account for taking people out for drinks, uh, <laughs> which uh, I'm slowly working towards a situation where the Jesuits will accept that as, as my job description. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I work for the Irish Jesuit province at a centre that they have uh, in Dublin City called the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice. And I'm yeah. the director there. And my, my role in terms of theology is this, this social theology. Um, which is a, if we imagine a, a set of Venn diagrams where we have political theology, moral theology, and public theology, where all of those things intersect, that's what social theology is, I- okay. in effect. Um, yeah. So um, uh, I'm, I'm not located in the academy, I'm not located in the church, I'm clearly not a political actor, and yet I, I have to maintain uh, dialogue with all of those different sectors. Yeah. Uh, so my 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 job as as I've come to understand it, and it's been an emerging kind of evolving situation because previously it's it's a position that's been held by Jesuits, but as I've I've settled into the role over the last three years, I I recognise that m- my job is to theologically reflect on what it means to be, um, to be Christians who, who see the pursuit of justice as integral to the practice of the faith yeah and therefore that has political implications in that kind of old christian understanding of politics as um working out how we live with our neighbors sharing our loves in common yeah um, so does that make sense is that a bit too fancy pants i mean when you get right down to it it means i'm <laughs> one of those theologians who holds a bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other yeah yeah that makes makes a lot of sense yeah and i, and think I have really to be able to preach to congregations on sundays and then i have to be <laughs> able to talk to politicians on mondays um yeah yeah i think i think i really like that intersection i think that's similar to where renewal will sits as well you know sort of how do we put our faith into action and you know that might mean as a as a christian i want to talk to my polit- you know local politician about um social justice about climate about about housing you know whatever whatever it might be yeah so, so it sounds like your your job sort of looks at theology from a very cross-cutting perspective. You're sort of, it cuts across a couple of different themes and topics and speaks into them, maybe. Yeah, uh, the Jesuits were doing intersectionality before it was a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, uh, in Ireland, the, the Jesuits are famous for running some of the best schools in the country. And of course, they, um, they have a very rich spiritual tradition. But at least for the last 40 or 50 years, they've been immersed in questions of social justice. Um, so they bring their uh, significant intellectual resources to bear on um, the questions of uh, of marginalisation. So, yeah. so the centre that I work for particularly focuses on housing and homelessness, on penal reform, on economic ethics, and then on environmental care. Um, yes. So all of those uh, different sectors are considered theologically, um, constantly considering the political question or the social question in terms of Catholic social teaching, in terms of biblical reflection. And of course, that doesn't mean that we're quoting the Bible when we sit down with uh, sure. senior civil servants, but it does mean that our particular positions are attempts to try to reflect 
the spirit of Ignatian spirituality in the public sphere. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, how did you how did you end up getting into that line of work? Uh, I, it, it has to be an act of God because I'm a Presbyterian <laughs> theologian. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was training to be a Presbyterian minister when the Jesuits got their hands on me. Um, wow. So I was doing a PhD in Aberdeen under uh, Brian Brock, who's a, a renowned disability theologian, and Stanley Harowitz, an American um, virtue theologian. And um, I was looking particularly at the, uh, the theological meaning of wealth, and why it right, is okay. that Christians pay so little attention to, to the fact that they, in the Western world, were mostly rich. And the entire New Testament has nothing good to say about wealth. Yeah. So I spent three or four years happily reading Karl Barth and the parables and thinking about those things from a theological direction. And then it came time to find a job. And uh, it was a wonderful serendipity or providence. That yeah. meant that uh, I bumped into a Jesuit called John Guiney and another guy called Jerry O'Hanlon, a great Jesuit theologian here in Ireland, and they offered me this position. And uh, it's it's the best uh, circumstance I could imagine. Um, I get to yeah. live in my hometown. Uh, I get to do this work that I love, and I am now in this uh, conversation with this great tradition of Christianity that isn't native to me, um, but is very receptive and hospitable to me. So yeah. Uh, so it's it's wonderful, and I encourage your listeners to uh, to kind of seek out uh, the Jesuit tradition and the Ignatian uh, spiritual practices because uh, coming from an evangelical background, uh, I, I recognise that there's a nourishment there and a maturity there mm. that we could all benefit from. Yeah, fantastic. So maybe maybe moving a bit more in that in that direction, um, we've had so Fratelli Tutti uh, has just recently been been released, which is the uh, Pope Francis's next encyclical. Um, yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, and yeah, what what was what was Pope Francis talking about in this next in this encyclical, and what are some of the main takeaways from it? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, I, I suppose we should begin with what an encyclical is. Um, yeah, you know, because I I think a lot of people who who aren't in the Catholic Church, indeed, many people who are Catholics, have a have a kind of twisted idea of papal authority. It is true to say that ultimately the Pope is the supreme pontiff the the supreme leader of the the catholic church but that doesn't mean that everything that the pope says is authoritative you know when he says mm-hmm. that he likes cheerios for breakfast in the morning yeah. that doesn't mean that we all have to eat cheerios so um the encyclical is a a long-standing mode of interaction between the papal teaching office and the faithful uh, which is uh, significantly authoritative so this isn't the same thing as just his, uh, the Pope's remarks in an interview on the airplane home from a visit. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so that's the, the first thing to, to recognize is that uh, P- Pope Francis in the, whatever it is, maybe eight years now, nine years that he's been Pope, I don't know for sure. Um, he's only written three encyclicals. Um, yeah. So that's how significant this is in terms of it being an important document. And um, it, it Reading it, I suppose if you want my one-line summation of it, it feels like Francis's uh, best of album. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, there's, there's yeah. like is it uh, Alan Partridge uh, famously says that his favorite, favorite Beatles album is the best of the Beatles. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, if you want to... If you want to uh, pick up uh, in one easy 43,000 word essay what Francis <laughs> is about, Fratelli Tutti is actually a great place to begin. Um, okay. It's largely composed of uh, quotations from his own homilies, from his addresses, from his speeches. Uh, so it's, um, 
it's a, a, a distillation of many of the themes that have been surrounding his papacy. And Fratelli Tutti means we are all brothers, um, which is itself a, a controversial point because uh, while linguistically you can interpret that to mean we are all siblings, brothers and sisters, it is an unfortunate mistake for uh, the leader of a, a religion that has an all-male priesthood right. uh, to kind of exclude women in the, in the title. Uh, I, I think that that, that is both a uh, reasonable and I- uh, inescapable criticism and also a touch ungenerous at the same time because, uh, you know, uh, uh, but moving on anyway, uh, Fratelli Tutti means we're all brothers and fraternity has been Pope Francis's overriding concern. Uh, when I say that, I mean, like, if you even go back to the YouTube video of him being announced as Pope, he comes out onto the balcony in St. Peter's and he calls on us all to keep praying for each other and to enact fraternity. So like this has been his touchstone from the very beginning and it's a long essay um, uh, broken up into a bunch of different sections uh, all in dialogue with the Good Samaritan parable. Okay. So uh, it's basically Francis musing in different directions pastorally here, politically there, theologically at another point musing on that question, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Um, And it's full of really fascinating developments in terms of Christian thinking, uh, particularly around the idea of interreligious dialogue. Right at the very Mm -hmm. beginning, he says he's decided to put this encyclical together in part because of conversations he's had with Muslims, especially out of a document that was um, released in conjunction with the United Arab Emirates last year. Um, So like that's a, a global human brotherhood it's following on from Laudato Si. It's saying that our brotherhood isn't just with other human beings, but with all creatures and with the earth. And then uh, the way that he works it out pastorally is that it's really a profound reflection on how impoverishing individualism is and mm. how uh, the I that we all possess is formed by the we of community. So it's, it's a kind of countercultural challenge to, uh, to recenter the human life around community. And then, I mean, the, the stuff that a lot of American Catholics have been deeply offended by is the fairly radical statements that it includes about economy, immigration, right. death penalty, war. You know, uh, Francis pulls no punches. He, he doesn't necessarily advance particularly new ideas. He's restating what's largely been established in the past. But it really is um, uncompromising, his articulation of these things. So, for example, he says we don't have private property. Yeah. Ultimately, uh, if there is someone, if, if our brother is in need and we have what it takes to meet our brother's need, then if we, if we resist giving it to them, we are, we are stealing. Because, mm, because mm. in the first place, we were given it as a gift by God. Yeah. And it wasn't given to us as, a, as, as an encouragement or an inducement to induce suffering in others. Yeah. Um, on uh, immigration, he really does, uh, in an uncomfortable, even for myself as a Je- uh, someone working within a Jesuit social center, uh, I was challenged by the, the way he really presses home our responsibility to welcome. Mm. And uh, uh, there's very little space left for the nation state, never mind nationalism, at the end of Fratelli Tutti. Um, And I mean, that's an interesting 
it's an interesting it's an interesting position because the Vatican City State is yeah, is yeah. a nation, um, and then um, he uh, he he very clearly brings an end to the death penalty. Um, Catholics yeah. really can't. There's no wriggle room anymore. Catholics can't yeah. support the death penalty, and he he effectively brings an end to the just war tradition. Okay. By pointing out that there's there's no way you can have a just war anymore because you can't have uh, discrimination about who's a combatant and who's not. So he had, a, I mean, long before him, I mean, the the popes since since after World War Two have been moving in this direction, but he really has um, accelerated that shift towards being a peacemaking church, um, not quite pacifist, but uh, definitely no longer willing to kind of do that weighing up that a lot of Anglicans ended up getting the calculation wrong on the Iraq war mm. yeah, you know, yeah. I, if we if we want to we don't have to think too far back to find lots of prominent church figures uh, didn't raise their voice in protest there yeah and the justification for their position was this just war tradition and while while Pope Francis doesn't repudiate that as an intellectual artifact or as a you know meaningful contribution from the church to the political world he does say uh, there's, there's not any particular contemporary relevance for that. So I've talked along there a long time, but hopefully I've, I've given you a full account. <laughs> if you're interested no, that's really in, good. In, in how a guy can compress all of that into, into a short book, then uh, Fratelli Tutti is freely available online. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, you've used the word providence earlier in this, in this episode, and it's, it's, it's interesting the timing of of this encyclical and obviously what the world is facing and I'm assuming given the length of it that that Pope Francis has been writing this for for quite a while and um and yet here we are in in a in a in a new way of doing life that really relies on us to not see ourselves as individual we we give up some individual freedoms because we want the the health of our neighbor um to still be to be strong and robust so yeah, it's, it's, it, seems, it seems like a providential timing in terms of the release of it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's amazing to think that this, this document has, has arrived with this fundamental message that we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, and we have the combined COVID and climate catastrophes, uh, both of which are, are only navigable to the extent that we recognize that we are all interconnected. Yeah. Uh, so when we read Fratelli Tutti as part of the Francis papacy, you know, with Laudato Si as the centerpiece, mm. uh, we see that here he's he's really unpacking what the you know the the idea of the heart of Laudato Si as I read it is integral ecology that yeah. you can't engage with the climate and biodiversity crisis without also recognizing the 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 social crisis and vice versa. And so in Fratelli Tutti, he's, he's drawing out one particular aspect of that. A register of that is this idea of brotherhood and connectivity. And yeah. he's saying, uh, here are pastoral, political, and uh, interreligious implications for, for this fundamental claim. Um, and this is how these pieces might start fitting together. Yeah. Uh, so it's intellectually audacious. When you really step back and look at what's being proposed here, um, this is something that Christians ought to be able to celebrate. Um, yeah. And it's good that we live in an age uh, where it doesn't matter what tradition we're from, we're able to, to thank God for the light wherever it is. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I'm delighted to see so many evangelicals 
engage so enthusiastically with this material because there's there's lots more in it i feel like yeah. like we can be unpacking this for decades yeah that's interesting yeah it sort of it reminds me a little bit of um you know you look at the principles of jubilee and uh, studied studied a studied little bit of torah with a with a rabbi before and that was just really fascinating sort of um experience and insight and we sort of i was asking questions about jubilee and what that theologically looks like and how you know what how does it outwork into our our lives and um i was really struck by a principle that was brought out that there's a sort of a it's the uh, the hebrew word nefesh you know it's a mm-hmm. sort of um which isn't just an it's an individual thing it's a sort of a it's a it's a you know spirit to spirit connection with with those around us and our brothers and sisters around us and uh so yeah it's interesting it's how it's those those themes are all interwoven in there and maybe similar thinking it sparks off some thoughts about maybe Walter Brueggemann and some of his thoughts on that stuff as well which is quite quite similar but uh yeah interesting interesting stuff but uh we let's 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 move on slightly because we've um I think we you know what what uh what what is a podcast where two Irish guys are talking and we don't get a chance to talk about Ireland yeah, you know I just absolutely. I just feel like we have to we've already talked about it a little bit you know but uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts a little bit on Ireland's uh, new climate action plan and the climate action bill uh, that was brought forward recently. Yeah, what you know, maybe again, so we've had we probably have we have some listeners from Ireland, but not everyone would know the context of Irish uh, sort of climate politics at the moment. But yeah, maybe if you could give a little bit of an overview of the state of play at the moment, that would be great. Uh, great, uh, happy to to try. Uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> you could, you could spend hours, and when two Irish guys get together, we, David, we very happily dissect it for hours. Yeah. Uh, in Fratelli Tutti, uh, the Pope says uh, dialogue is really the methodology that Christians engage the world through. Um, and I wish that the Irish government engaged in more extensive dialogue on their climate yeah. policies. Uh, that's yeah. the, the takeaway. Um, at the moment, uh, Ireland has been uh, called a, a climate laggard and our leaders have accepted that that's the case. Um, earlier in the year, the Green Party entered into a coalition with the, the two centrist neoliberal parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and they're the minority partner um, and uh, there was hope that this uh, new climate bill uh, written by the Green Party would achieve the kind of transformative change that is desperately needed. Yeah. Uh, I think even the most generous possible interpretation would have to say that our hopes have been disappointed. Yeah. Um, so the situation that we're in is uh, it's a, a big improvement on what we had before. I mean, uh, we had just just last year we had a climate action plan, which was really just a, a long exercise in cost benefit analysis. Um, yeah. It was really depressing, and it only committed to three uh, percent reduction in carbon emissions every year, which in two thousand and nineteen is just it's a bad joke um yeah yeah uh, then we had this program for government that was drawn up which was this uh, very loose kind of uh, six pages of these are all the promises that we intend to fail to keep um and (laughs) uh there was enough material there to give optimists fuel um and those optimists have probably all been thoroughly converted into pessimists now with the climate bill um on the plus side we're we're up to you know uh seven to ten percent emissions aims and yeah. there's all kinds of new structures in place and and all kinds of kind of fancy governance governance i think that's where these bills have succeeded it's incredibly boring to talk about um 
governance, but it's, it's necessary nonetheless. So they've created all kinds of new accountability structures. But as a whole, the Irish env environmental policy continues to be at best disjointed. Um, yeah. We're weak in ambition and we're sloppy in implementation. And it pains me to say this, but even the Brits are better than us. <laughs> so uh, we really are laggards um, and there's no reason for it. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Right, what's your take on it, David? I mean, uh, I know you've been following it closely. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for, for people, for context, people know that I was uh, up until recently involved with the, the Irish Green Party. And um, yeah, I decided not to to continue that sort of relationship with it because like like yourself, I just I was a bit, you know, quite disappointed with the the, the climate action bill and then also you know, there was obviously a, a mishandling of, a, of the mother and baby homes um, sort of situation as well but yeah I guess for me my my biggest worry at the moment is how we're dropping the ball on uh, a just transition and you know incorporating the big changes that need to happen in a just way that won't leave people behind who are already disenfranchised who are already you know living in, in deprived circumstances so Particularly looking at you know fuel poverty and things like that when it comes to comes to climate tax, um, or sorry carbon tax. Um, so yeah, my reading of it is it's quite similar to yourself. I think it's uh, it's a shame that we couldn't have more ambition. I'm I am hopeful that maybe over time as things get refined and as the bill goes through sort of parliamentary scrutiny and the and the Iraq to scrutiny that some of the some of the weaknesses of the bill maybe can be worked on and uh, it can show a bit more ambition. Uh, and I, I think what's interesting as well in, in a global context is I've noted that obviously uh, President-elect Biden has been calling various different leaders and I noted supposedly on his call with, with a lot of them, he was talking about climate change. And uh, I know he, he supposedly brought that up with Michal Martin, um, our, our current Taoiseach, current rotating Taoiseach. You know, that means it's, I assume that means they sort of, he just sits in a room and he's rotated every now and then. And, um, you know, every so often Leo Radker comes in and rotates him. Um that's probably just a little bit of an inside joke for yes, any of the Irish yeah. listeners, but uh, yeah. So I, I think it's it's interesting from being at, we were a cop last year, and it was really clear that without leadership coming from the big emitters and from the the countries who had quite a lot of power in those in those negotiating rooms, without that ambition from them, other you know smaller and medium countries just weren't weren't motivated to to also step up their ambition. And so I think with I think it, it does look like Biden is going to be really pushing the you know the states down a much more um, a much bigger vision and a much more uh, yeah it, I think they're going to they're obviously going to rejoin the Paris Agreement which is one thing but also you know it's not just about sort of fancy policy words we need we need to see need to see them you know take action and drive that forward and so bring that to an Irish context I wonder if that will also uh, put a bit more of a bit more of a motivation under under the Irish government to look at these things and kind of say well okay we you know the the international pressure now is is coming in in all directions of across the Atlantic from the EU and from the US now and so I wonder will that spur them into a little bit more uh, ambition as well which I'd, I'd, I'd like to think it will but yeah we'll see we'll see what happens COP, COP will be interesting next November um, and hopefully we can see some some good leadership coming from the UK in terms of hosting that as well yeah I mean I I I hope that that's how it's going to play out. I'm probably um, um, more skeptical of, of the, yeah. the reality of what Biden is going to bring about. Um, you know, uh, I think we're all relieved that he has won, uh, but we're forgetting that it's not 
too many weeks ago that he publicly declared that fracking would be protected yeah, under yeah. his his regime and i mean he's uh through his campaign he was often uh, astonishingly dismissive of movements like the sunrise movement um yeah so i don't know uh, unless there's been a damascus road conversion and i do believe <laughs> in such conversions um i i think that uh, it's going to be a lot more like obama version two which is great yeah. rhetoric and little action whereas the irish climate bill doesn't even have great rhetoric how easy <laughs> is it to have someone point out that you should at least laden this document with the language of just transition yeah uh, so that you can camouflage it for for people like kevin hargadon so that he he could could be satisfied um and he doesn't go on <laughs> podcasts and tell people around the world that the irish politicians don't really care about this issue but they didn't even put the word just transition in as kind yeah. of wallpaper um yeah. so uh there is lots as you say there there is hope that there could be amendments they've engaged excellent expert opinion in the uh, parliamentary process for review so uh, it's not going to be as bad as it looked uh, like but but there's so many loopholes uh, there's so little ambition there's like even incoherent ideas like yeah. the whole plan relies on carbon capture technology which doesn't exist yeah, yeah. Uh, it does there's just no other part of politics where you're able to to imagine oh we'll solve that problem because of sky hooks you know they, they yeah. don't exist they can't exist yeah. but that's okay we're going to somehow pass this as a law um so i feel like there is warrant for environmentalism in ireland to be annoyed and and dismayed and yeah. i i um w want to maintain the papal position that dialogue matters and that's the way we we proceed but i think that there's big tension uh, politically in ireland and the young people demographically overwhelmingly support uh, radical climate mitigation and biodiversity measures. Yes. And it's a few vested interests, sectoral concerns that are holding that back. So yeah. uh, I would love to see uh, the Green Party, the parliamentary Green Party uh, show leadership here. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, if they're listening, and they might be, I, I, I would <laughs> urge them, uh, because because if they come out and say, right, we're going to go after this, uh, they will have the support of hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and more importantly, they are doing the right thing. Uh, and I know yeah. we want to talk about that, what, wh why we should be involved in this, and why as Christians we ought to be um, at the forefront of the conversation about it climate and biodiversity catastrophe and it's 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 because ultimately uh what are human beings for yeah. um we, uh, genesis very clearly gives us an anthropological vision of human beings as creatures called to cultivate the good creation yeah. and yeah. uh we've spent a couple of centuries experimenting with other methods and it always means that the strong benefit and the weak suffer so uh maybe it's time for us to to put an end to that experiment and go back to more fundamental traditional concepts of 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 creation care yeah well you've you've uh you've basically already answered my my what would have been my, my final question as to why why should christians be involved in these things and why should we care about these things very uh very succinctly put, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thanks. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 again and again, I am struck by how often uh, every eschatological vision in the scriptures, every picture that we have of the consummation, uh, 
the, the end of all things. When, wh- what does it mean when Jesus says, behold, I make all things new? Yeah. Again and again, the scriptures describe that for us in terms of the natural environment. Yeah. Um, and that can't just be attributed to, well, you know, the, it was a pastoral society or it was, uh, you know, uh, whatever particular context obtained. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 55, we hear that the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is an environmental picture of harmony, of flourishing. And yeah. uh, so, so for those of us who take the scriptures as a supreme authority, I don't think there's any wriggle room here. Um, creation care is mandated because to the extent that we look forward to uh, the consummation of all things and yeah. the, the messianic feast and the banquet, uh, we're looking forward to an ecological vision. And I, I think uh, Pope Francis draws on the Good Samaritan as his, his parable because neighbor care is absolutely central to what it means to follow Jesus. And yeah. uh, the particular neighbors who suffer under climate and biodiversity catastrophe are the weak and the marginalized. Um, you know, as a, a relatively well-to-do, highly educated white person in the European Union, I'm not going to be that put out by these changes. Um, the costs are already being borne by people in the equatorial regions of the world, and yeah. those costs are going to escalate. Um, and I think, uh, I, I, I think when we get right down to it, the reason why we should pursue these pathways towards regeneration and almost revolution is because it's more fun. I've often I've often toyed with the idea of writing a book about the environmental catastrophe that never mentions the environmental catastrophe. Yeah, Um, because uh, like one of the the most enjoyable things that has happened in my life since I moved home to Ireland is I've put the car away and I'm on my bike now. Yeah, and it has improved my life uh, many times over. And uh, this the same will be testified to by everybody who's kind of committed to growing some veg in their back garden or yeah. uh, being more mindful of their consumption habits and on and on. All the little uh, individual steps that we're exhorted to take, uh, they make our life better. And the kind of um, radical political, structural, societal alterations that are demanded by things like the Green New Deal similarly make our society better. Um, so I often think uh, if, if the conspiracy theorists are right, and this is some grand hoax um, orchestrated by those powerful figures in agricultural <laughs> botany uh, yeah. or whoever else it is that's apparently behind all this, uh, the hoax is the most benign hoax in all of history because the end result is we're going to have healthier children growing up yeah. in uh, uh, societies that are more equal. Uh, where they're able to breathe the air and eat nutritious food. And this is, it's all for the good. Um, So uh, while I appreciate those people who feel a need to um, push the button that that signals a siren and a loud alarm and who talk about apocalyptic civilizational collapse, and that is what we face in the medium term, Mm -hmm. I'm much more inclined to read the scriptures and think there's a lot to, there's a, a, a lot that we're just not tapping into here. Yeah. Our, our addiction to comfort and, and capitalism's notion of prosperity has made us blind to the low-hanging fruit that, 
that creation offers us. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, even there, I've ended with a rapacious, greedy um, <laughs> metaphor. But hopefully people are able to get what I'm getting at. Uh, this, uh, if we want to know why we should be concerned about the nuts and bolts of governance structures for carbon budget, budgets, the reason why is because uh, the, the scriptures exhort us to care for our common home. Yeah. Um, I think it's, 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 it's totally, yeah, it's, um, it totally rings true. I mean, for me in terms of, this is just a really small aside, but, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we got the, we were lucky to have a garden. So, you know, we cut some, some turf off the uh, a top layer in one corner and got planting our, our fruits and vegetables. And, you know, it's, I was, I was shocked at how much I was part of the system in that I would go to the supermarket and I would buy my fruit and veg and I would uh, eat them every week and they would keep me happy and healthy. And, you know, the, but when you, when I've, after having planted the seeds and tending to them and caring for them and, and I mean, genuine care, I'm like, come on, come on, little tomato seed. I need <laughs> yeah, you to, yeah. you know, you know, spring forth with life here. Playing and, Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony to encourage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, just, just making sure yeah, the temperature's just right. Yeah, the humidity level's just right. Perfect. And uh, and then, you know, bringing them out into the garden and getting them used to the sunlight and the wind and the elements and then planting them and, and then seeing all these fantastic tomatoes and courgettes and and um, chard. Chard was the other thing that my wife got me onto, which I was never, never into before. Rainbow chard. Really, really, really uh, lovely um, uh, bit of veg. But, you know... It was, it was just, I was surprised at how much it impacted me. And I think anybody who grows a bit of fruit and veg will attest to how it, how it can have an impact on you. But there was something, I, I genuinely felt something of God's heart in what we were doing, this mm. sort of um, tending to creation and and caring for it and willing it to grow and do well and uh, and pruning it, you know, having to cut back, yeah, yeah. you know, leaves to, to, to allow the, the courgette plant to, to continue to produce its fruit and... Yeah, totally. There was, there was, there was. God was teaching me so much through uh, that little bit of gardening throughout the the lockdown, and which has continued on now. Uh, but yeah, I think Kevin, we've it's been absolutely fascinating to chat to you, and maybe we should we should leave it on that note. Um, but I really, really would just encourage listeners. I think Kevin's just mentioned some things there that are just super, super fascinating and interesting. So please do go to is it's jcfj.ie, Kevin? Is that That's the website? Jcfj.ie. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. If, if Please uh, go there, go there, and have a read of some of the some of the material that the guys in the uh, the Jesuit Center for Faith and Justice what they're producing, and you'll you'll see some more in depth pieces from from Kevin and from others on some of the topics and themes that we've talked about today. Uh, Kevin, nothing nothing else left to do but to say thank you for your time, and uh, yeah, we've loved having you on. Thanks, David. Cheers, guys. So that's the end of end of series one. As I said, please do uh, yeah do give us a review on on iTunes or. Uh, Spotify, whatever whatever podcast provider you're listening to, that helps us uh, get our get our ratings up and get uh, get the word out to more people. And uh, we're looking forward to chatting to you again soon in season two. See you later, guys. Bye bye. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Renew Our World podcast. To learn more about the Renew Our World campaign or to hear about some of the work that our partners are doing, make sure you jump on over to our website at renewourworld.net. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss a podcast episode again.